Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with my special co-host and co-founder of Village Global, Adam Corey. And we're here with special guest, Clint Corver of Ulu Ventures. And we are here to talk about portfolio construction in BC. Clint, Adam, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation, Eric. Likewise, and uh, happy to, to join my co-founder, Eric, and, and Clint. Clint, could you start with the introduction of, of who you are how your theory of portfolio construction has evolved over time and what you're doing with Ulu Ventures? Sure. So I'm the co-founder and managing director at Ulu Ventures. We're a seed stage enterprise IT focused venture firm here in uh, Silicon Valley. We've been doing this for about 10 years now. And prior to this, I was an entrepreneur for 15 years. And one of the themes throughout my career has been decision-making under uncertainty. By the way, I got a PhD at Stanford in this area, and all my companies were all about using data and logic and process to help organizations make better decisions. Think pharma R&D, oil and gas exploration, financial services, these sort of things. And really, those experiences are what drive how we think about portfolio construction at Ulu. And if you go to like the pharma R&D world, there's a set of best practices around how you think about uncertainty, how you pull in expert judgment, and ultimately manage a portfolio of highly highly risky assets in clinical trial development. And I'd argue that the business model of venture capital and the risks and returns of the underlying assets are very similar to the world of pharmaceuticals. And so we're pulling in those best practices. And by the way, in my prior life, I helped make those best practices in the pharma world. And that really stems, like I said, from all the way back to my PhD work. Can you unpack that a little bit? How are the pharma and VC worlds similar and how are they different in your view? Yeah, well, so so if you're a big pharma company and you're trying to figure out, well, which compounds do I bring into clinical trial development, your hit rate is abysmal. I mean, maybe you're hitting like one out of 20 investments, by the way, these are investments you're spending millions of dollars in, and maybe only one in 20 actually get to be a commercializable product. And even then, most of the commercializable products, you barely make any money on it. So if you look at like how an Eli Lilly or a Pfizer or a Merck really makes money, there's a small number of what they call blockbuster drugs that drives all the profitability. Now, if you compare that to the venture world, the vast majority of venture investments end up being zeros or essentially uninteresting. And there's a very small number of Googles and Facebook and LinkedIn's and, and so forth that drive all the profitability in the industry. So the underlying dynamics, and then by the way, so if you, if you kind of look at the curve underneath these individual assets, it's driven by something called the power law. So most assets are normally distributed. And when I say assets, I mean like housing prices, stock prices, individual R&D projects inside a lot of companies where, and if it's a project or an asset that is normally distributed, to understand portfolio construction, you want to understand the fat part of the curve, that 90% confidence interval. But in the worlds of oil and gas exploration, pharma R&D, actually book publishing, movies, venture capital, there's a set of industries that have this abnormal 
profitability profile where the top 2% of, call it the deals or, or the assets, drive essentially all the profitability in the industry. And the vast majority of the investments end up losing money. And so that, that underlying risk and return of the individual assets in these different industries really drives a completely different, I would argue, way you need to think about portfolio construction. And, and let's un- unpack that further. Why don't you give sort of a brief overview of what your theory of portfolio construction is at ULU? So our, our theory is really driven by this view that the underlying returns in venture follow a power law. And so when you're in a power law world, the real key in portfolio construction is to make sure that you've got a, an outlier success in your portfolio. And if you have one of those outlier successes, you're going to generate great returns for your LPs. And if you don't have an outlier in your portfolio, you're really going to struggle to generate good returns for your investors. So that's the whole game. By the way, there are other ways to play venture, but but we're, I'd say, so we're calling, a lot of VCs say the same things we do, which is, you know, we're all about finding that outlier. So if you say that, then I think it drives you to a couple of conclusions. One is a large portfolio because, oh, by the way, because they're outliers, they're very difficult to find. And even the Sequoias and Greylocks and benchmarks of the world don't find these very often. And when they do, when a benchmark finds an Uber, it generates more profit than every other investment benchmark has ever done. And that's the nature of the industry. So large portfolios. And then there's another dynamic here that I think is somewhat more controversial in the industry, which is we do not believe in doubling down on our winners. So they, so we also believe that we want to put the vast majority of our capital up front in the early stages of companies before they become winners. So I'd say those are kind of like the, the two big, if you will, insights to fall out of our analytic approach to portfolio construction, big portfolios and invest your money early. Clint, as you talk about outliers, is there a formal definition of an outlier, meaning it, an exit valuation, right? We tend to refer to unicorns, uh, billion dollar plus valuations. It, does that qualify as an outlier or is there something more general that you're looking for? Or how do you frame that in, in your mind? Yeah, you know, and, and one of the challenges in venture, it's very difficult to get your hands on data. And so like when I think about an outlier, my definition is it burns our fund. So if we're going to have 50 investments in our fund and we have an outlier success, that means that one investment has returned, I mean, keep the math super simple, basically, it's been a 50x multiple on our investment. So that would be my definition of an outlier. Just to give you a kind of a sense of like data on this. So Cambridge Associates tracks the top 100 investments in venture every year. This is out of 4,000 venture investments that are done. And those 100 investments represent essentially all the profitability in the industry. And this has been true ever since they've been tracking now for about 14 years. So basically what that means is the top 2.5% of all venture investments, 100 out of 4,000 deals, generates all the profit in the industry. In other words, that's the whole game. The whole game are these top 2.5% of the investments. And if you say, well, what, what does it take? What kind of multiple does it take to get into that? And they don't share that data. But so I'd argue, and this is kind of extrapolating from a few other sources, you know, you, you sort of need to be, you know, at least a 10x multiple and probably more like a 30x multiple to sort of get into that, the very bottom of those top 100. But of course, in that 100, there are people that are, there are, there are investments that are doing 100x to 1000x, that sort of thing. So there's a, there's a wide distribution even inside that. Back to the whole unicorn thing. 
So, so the unicorn, I'd say, is like it's like a, a signal or a pointer in the direction in terms of like how infrequent these things really are. And the challenge with unicorns is you don't know when somebody got in. So if, if you invested in a unicorn after it became a unicorn, I mean, you might not make, it can be, you know, you got a unicorn logo on your website, but you might not be making any money on it. Right, because so you came all, in at a later stage and, and paid a higher price. So your multiple is significantly reduced versus the, the people who entered earlier and, and made that better. Exactly. So in that framing, where does Ulu play as, as far as stage? And, and the names have, have been blurred, as, as we've talked about a lot, you know, seed and series A and pre-seed, uh, and the list goes on, and that means something different to, to different people. So as you construct Ulu going after this high-volume portfolio, or relatively high-volume, with, with a larger early check and, and not reserving as much for follow-ons, what stage are you playing at? And is there a time when you say, no, I should not participate in my first check at this valuation because the multiple that you might get at exit is so reduced? Yeah, well, so our focus area is called the seed space, broadly speaking. And whether it's pre-seed, seed, post-seed, I mean, I mean, we're, we're sort of indifferent to all that. And by the way, the reason we play seed is for two reasons. One, we think we've got an edge there relative to the competition. By the way, when you get to the Series A, the competition starts getting more and more tough. So it's a, it's a competitive thought. But there's also a risk-return thought. So when we write a check, we do an, a, a sort of a bottoms-up valuation of the risk and return. And we make investments when we can get a 10x probability-weighted multiple on invested capital or better. So just to explain that a little bit, a lot of VCs say, I want a 10x multiple. If I put a dollar in your company, I want $10 back at the end of the day. So we say the same thing, but probability-weighted. And so we're looking at explicitly representing the risks in the business, but we're also explicitly trying to represent adjacent market opportunities. So a lot of successful companies, if you get to be you know, a platform, now your original business can turn into multiple businesses because that gives you leverage into other markets. So we want to, on a probabilistic basis, take that into account as well. So pull it all together, 10x probability weighted multiple uninvested capital is our metric. That probability weighting, if you remove, and I've seen some data and, and from, from you offline that, that the listeners don't have access to, but that probability weighting is taking into account the likelihood of the, what the probability is speaking to is the likelihood of them reaching various steps along the way, right? From early stage success to, to growing, to, to becoming uh, either the market, uh, hopefully the market leader in that path. Can you simplify it and say that if you ignore the probability weighting aspect of it, you are, your first checks, you're targeting multiple hundred X returns, like 400 to 500 X on, on that initial in investment that you make if you ignore that probability aspect of it? So, so the, the kind of sort of ultimate multiple that we could get really depends a lot on the level of risk. So if it's a really risky company, I'll give you an example. So we've invested in a company called Sale Internet. Love the company, it's better high-speed internet access. And they're gonna take, they're gonna, they wanna take down Comcast. And by the way, so, you know, this is the kind of company with very small chance it's really going to happen. I mean, Comcast is, you know, kind of it makes your head hurt to think about competing against Comcast. But if they could do it, it's a $100 billion a year market. So that would be an example of a super risky company. But if they're successful, it's a huge multiple. So that's on one side. And then like a, another one of our investments is a company called Figure. They're doing home equity lines. It's a, it's a repeat entrepreneur, a guy, Mike Cagney, who we invested in before, who built up another big financial services company called SoFi. 
And so we would say that's uh, much less risky. He's going after a market that he understands that, you know, there aren't big comp competitors out there in the same kind of way, but it, it had a huge valuation on the first check. So, you know, our multiple on that, even in kind of the wildly successful scenario, is going to be, frankly, pretty modest compared to some of our other companies. But because it's lower risk, it ultimately penciled out also as a 10x probability weighted. So, so there can be, there's, there's very different profiles of companies that can ultimately get through our filter. And because think about, if you think of this as risk versus return on a chart, there is a line you can draw on that. It's actually a curve. And if we're above and to the right of that curve, you're in the investable set. Yeah. Gotcha. So every company you're looking at, uh, t these are two different I extremes uh, for companies. One of them, huge upside, but, but the significant risk that goes along with it. The other one, still a meaningful upside that we would all gladly take, um, but, but de-risked, you think, because of the market, but then the valuation uh, helps to balance that out. So then if you compile a portfolio of all of these companies with 10x multiples, you know, ideally that would result in a 10x overall fund return, but I imagine it's not quite that simple. So how do you think about that and recognizing uh, that, that you don't have all the information today and, and your 10x can very much become a zero in time? Yeah, well, you know, so, so it's interesting, by the way, we, we never say this to our LPs, but your logic is absolutely correct. If, if every individual asset has a 10x or better probability weighted multiple, then you roll it up into a portfolio. And if the portfolio is large enough, you should have a high chance of a 10x or better fund. Now, I mean, you know, that, that's kind of an outrageous thing to say. I mean, if you look at the stats, it's very rare for funds to get better than a 3x net multiple and a 5x net would be like, you know, you've hit it out of the park. We've been doing this now for 11 years. And there's definitely this chance that we're, we're like miscalibrated on the market. So one of the things that we were very concerned about is when we make these assessments, like, you know, the chance of team success at this stage. And so we break it down into stages and we've got all these different risks assessments and so forth, and as well as value assessments, is we're always looking at, okay, are we fooling ourselves? I mean, we know we have cognitive biases and we know that the data is incomplete out there and so forth. So the question is, how can we create a learning system such that if we're miscalibrated, we're overly optimistic or overly pessimistic on something, we're going to get feedback that allows us to improve our assessments. So that's, you know, I'd say internally, once we've, had, once we've got this framework, and it took us a few years to really develop a common framework that we now use for all of our investments, but now that we have this, we can, like I said, use it as a learning platform. And, and, and we, we have adjusted things. So I'll give you an example. So, so we found that entrepreneurs are, frankly, not very good at assessing dilution and their capital needs over time and, and are off by like, you know, like a factor of four X on uh, you, typically sources. underestimating, right? Uh, underestimating. underestimating. Yeah. yeah. What's required. Yep. So, so we don't even ask entrepreneurs anymore about dilution. And I mean, and built into that is, you know, their capital needs, are they a cost efficient business and all these sort of things? Cause we've just found we've got much better benchmarks and we've thought much more deeply about it than our entrepreneurs. So, so we just apply our data to our model without even discussing it with the entrepreneurs. Now, on the flip side, really, we see it look at the entrepreneurs as being the experts in the market opportunity and the business model and those customers and the competition. And so, so that's really where we're trying to essentially elicit the risk and return information from the entrepreneurs. And we build that in with our risk and return information that we have on dilution, market share, exit multiples, these kinds of things.
Right. And one, one area where you differ from some of the other high volume funds that are out there, such as a, a 500 startups, for instance, is you tend to write larger checks. Is that correct? Um, at day one and then uh, minimize the reserve capital that you have for follow on investments? Yeah. And, you know, so, so, so we're following this probability weighted multiple. That's our North Star. And so our question is, where do we, where are we most likely to get this? And descriptively, what we've found is that, well, I mean, we get it 100% of the time when we write the initial check. Otherwise, we wouldn't get into a company. And what we found is those companies that get to a Series A, about a third of the time that companies get a Series A, we can still get our, our 10x probability weighted multiple, And so in which case we'd be, we're happy to follow on at that case. And we almost never get it in the Series B and beyond. And the, the dynamic in the industry that we see is when companies start to really get some traction and they become, quote unquote, a winner, the price gets bid up much more dramatically than the risk has gone down. And so there's this discontinuity in the market between people's willingness to overpay for the best companies relative to the risk. Yeah, uh, agreed. And we've seen that even uh, within our own portfolio in, in positive ways where companies have, have raced around and then uh, very quickly a, a new round has occurred, partially due to the signaling of the first round, but uh, just general kind of hotness taking over. You're obviously taking a different approach and there's a lot of money flowing into into large vehicles going after these Series B rounds when, you know, as you just said, maybe the the hype has taken over a, a little bit on those companies. What is everyone else missing, <laughs> I guess, to, to give you the benefit of the doubt in that, that you're seeing? Uh, and why is so much capital flowing into those late stage uh, or, or not even late stage, but Series B valuations, as, as you'd say, at, at what seem to be inflated prices? Yeah, well, so, so if you look back and say, you know, why are we different than even other seed stage firms? Like a typical seed stage venture firm, for every dollar they put up front, they'll reserve two or three dollars for follow-on investments. And really, really, if you're doing that, we would argue only a third of your company, only a third of your capital is early stage and two thirds, in other words, everything you reserved is really now late stage, which with late stage risk and return. And so like, why is that? Why are you an early stage investor and most of your capital is being invested late stage? And, and I'd argue it's because the best practices in the industry, and best practices in quotes here, because this is a small industry and there's not a lot of best practices yet, but the best practices have really been established by you know, the top tier funds. If you look at Sequoia and Benchmark and Greylock and Excel and Andreessen, you know, all these guys that are the industry trendsetters, if you will, and they all have this story of, oh, it's really important to have reserves and support your entrepreneurs for follow-ons and double down on winners. And there's all this lore, if you will, in the industry. And I'd argue that makes a lot of sense for them. By the way, you know, if I'm Greylock and I have a billion dollar fund, there's no way I can get a billion dollars into the early stage investments. And so I have to put most of my money late stage because it doesn't fit anywhere else. And now I need a good story to my LPs on why I'm doing that. And so it's like that now becomes, you know, best practice around venture. And, and yeah, it's good to support entrepreneurs and that sort of thing. But I'd argue that data doesn't support it. So we're really driven by the data. When we look at the, the data and the analysis, give you a sense. So 40 years of venture, it's kind of about the length of the industry, early stage, 20% IRR over those 40 years, one of the best performing asset classes in existence. If you look at late stage, late stage is being defined as Series B and beyond, 10% IRR. By the way, it's still great, 
in the kind of the industry, but it only it's only half the performance of early stage. And early stage and so, series B? Or what's early, what's early stage here? Well, sorry, sorry uh, early, early stage is seed A and B, late stage is C and beyond. So that's the, some of the data that, that I've been able to see. So, and if you draw a line there and you say, well, anything you're putting C and beyond is getting 10%, anything that's early is getting 20%, you know, it's like I want to put all my money in basically where it's getting 20% or better if I can get it. Even within early stage, how would you break out, you know, seed and A? Because you know, we have a lot of conversations about and a lot of people you know, talk, in the industry talk about, like, would you rather be YC? Would you rather be first round? Would you rather be benchmark? So, you know, accelerator, seed or A? How do you break out returns from them? <laughs> Well, you know, so I'd love to be any of those guys, right? I mean, they're all killing it. Yeah, yeah but if I look at kind of like, if I look at like Y Combinator and if I look at their unicorn hit rate, and by the way, you know, CB Insights and PitchBook and so forth, you can put some of this data out there. And, and they have about a 1% unicorn hit rate, which is about the industry average. And oh, by the way, if you had an index fund of the venture industry, a smart index fund, you'd do great. I mean, 20% IRR over 40 years, that's awesome. So, so I, I would say, so Y Combinator is really playing, call it the industry index. Now, if you go to like a first round capital, they're being a little more choosy, I'd say. And by the way, their unicorn hit rate is almost 3%. So they've got a 3x hit rate on unicorns compared to Y Combinator. I think, by the way, they're doing an awesome job in terms of being able to manage a large portfolio in a quality way. Um, by the way, that's probably where Ulu ends up. So if you look at the success path for us, we probably look more like first round at the end of the day as opposed to like a benchmark moving up. By the way, benchmark has about a 4.5% unicorn hit rate. And so, you know, when, when you get the later stage you get and the more data you get, the easier it is to pick out the companies that are likely to be the successes. However, you're also paying for it with much higher valuations and the competition is much more intense. Yeah, if you had all the relevant skills, you'd say you'd still rather be, you'd rather be first round because it's too crowded at the A or, or I guess, how do you, if you had all the relevant yeah, well, so so, so I, I'd argue that the, the opportunity for the best risk and return numbers are in the first round category. Because I actually think that so a lot of the upside gets bid out, even when you get to the A's, like the really promising A's, the SoFi's of the world, the Palantir's of the world, that sort of thing. I mean, you know, when you come out of the gate really fast, well, Palantir, by the way, that was a different story. But SoFi, when it came out of the gate, there was a 10x increase between the seed price and the A price. So if you were a Series A investor getting into SoFi, you did you did good, but you didn't it didn't make your fund. Whereas if you were a seed investor, that one investment made your fund. If Benchmark was on this call or someone from Sequoia, what do you think they would say in terms of why aren't they saying, hey, we should copy the first round portfolio construction, start doing leading seeds instead of leading A's? What, what do they believe that's keeping them in their current strategy? Well, so they they would say it's like, hey, look, you know, my I can get all the capital I need. The scare, my scarcest resource is my time. So if I can't write a $10 million check and ultimately put $40 million into a company, it just doesn't make any sense for me to spend time on a company. So like at the seed stage, I mean, even a large seed where somebody's raising at two to $3 million, you know, it doesn't make sense for a, a benchmark, a Sequoia, an Andreessen, a Greylock to spend any time at all on these things. And, and by the way, every once in a while, there's some... You know, it's, it's such a blow your hair back startup company that these companies will write a $2 million seed, step, seed check. Like, yeah, so like Sequoia has, and they put like, I don't know, a million dollars into Yahoo as the very first check into Yahoo. 
and this is like you know the apocryphal story as to you know how great Sequoia is, and it was. I mean, that was a you know that was an enlightened enlightened investment. But the vast majority of Sequoia's early stage investments, you know, they're writing ten million dollar checks because that's the model. So I want to zoom out for a second and revisit something you said earlier in terms of your most quote unquote controversial and they are controversial you know opinions are or, or you know things that you hold uh, at Ulu is one high volume uh, and two no reserves. And so I want to you know unpack one by one. So first on the high volume side, why is that controversial? And then why, you know, if, if Mike Maples, Jock Koppelman, or a seed manager who has a different strategy was on this call, what do they believe that it leads them to have a different strategy or what set of different set of assumptions are they, are they working with than you are? Yeah, well, so by the way, I would say Mike Maples actually does fairly high volume. And, and the key question is like, how many deals are in a fund? And I would argue Floodgate probably has 40 to 50 deals in a fund, which is actually kind of a large fund. And so like the, the people on the other extreme are more like there are folks that are doing like a 10 to 15 deals in a fund. And by the way, you know, we love investing in some of these folks like a Michael Deering at Harrison Metal or uh, Ashmeet Sindana over at, uh, at Engineering Capital. There are some great folks that have really concentrated portfolios and have made it work. But we'd argue that to have a concentrated portfolio, you really have to believe that you can pick winners at a much higher rate than the industry. So, you know, if the industry rate is two and a half percent, this is the Cambridge Analytics data. And, oh, by the way, the top tier funds, Sequoia, Benchmark, Greylock, and so forth, they bat about 5%. So Horsley Bridge, who invests in all these folks, has shared some data through um, Andreessen Horowitz blog posts and a few things like that. And basically, 60% of the returns out of these top tier funds come from four and a half percent of their invested capital. So round numbers call it the industry bats two and a half percent, the top tier folks bat five percent. And so now you gotta sit there and say, well, how good are you really? So if if you think you can have a 10 company portfolio and you're batting five percent, so you're batting the, at the Sequoia level, at the end of the day, you have a 37% chance of having an outlier in your fund. And oh, by the way, no outlier in your fund means mediocre results and it's hard to raise the next fund. So, so now I get down to those, like, how do you tell yourself a story? How do you convince yourself that 10 investments in your portfolio to take the extreme is a good idea? And you either have to believe that number one, your hit rate's much higher than Sequoia's. So if you've got like a 20% hit rate, if you think one in five of your companies are gonna be an outlier, and so 10 companies gives you plenty of comfort, then, you know, all right, that works from a math point of view, but, you, but it all presumes you're four times as good as Sequoia at picking things. The other way that this works is you say, I'm not going to play the outlier game. And so I'm, I'm not about trying to invest in the next Google or Facebook. I'm going to invest in companies that are safe. So they've got, you know, a much higher chance, low loss rate, but because of a low loss rate, I'm probably not going to get the big high end, but I'm going to make my portfolio work with, you know, a 5X. Maybe have a couple of 10Xers in there. And by the way, there's a Aligned Partners follows this strategy, which is they think everybody in venture is kind of going after these super risky companies that are very competitive. And they're going to go find the companies that have a very high chance at the you know, early stage, very high chance of getting to 10, $20 million in revenue getting sold for 50 to $100 million, and they're going to make 3x, 5x, and sometimes 10x their money. And fund after fund, they generate 3x net to their LPs. 
So they do very well. So, but I'd say, you know, that's, I think that's what people say. You either have to convince yourself you're much, much better than average or you're not playing the outlier game. Right. Which in, in some sense, Adam, maybe 500 startups was doing this in the sense of either you're praising, Hey, we can get a bunch of doubles and triples and singles and it's a repeatable three X. Yeah, I, I think that was the approach. And, you know, a company or an organization like 500 startups also had the benefit of running the accelerator program where you get, you know, somewhat extraordinary economics versus traditional seed or pre-seed stage investing. So, right. But at the end, that all that gets back to is that valuation matters, right? It's another saying that you have an accelerator is just another proxy for, for valuation uh, within it. And that's where getting down to that $2 million threshold or, or five or eight versus 10, 15s and 20s, it, it does play out in a very material way from a fund construction. And if you're going in at, at low enough valuations, it's much easier, of course, to turn that capital into, into multiples, assuming you have some picking ability and, and that your quality doesn't decrease. So I guess that's, that was actually touching on my next question that I would have for Clint is when does this kind of break as far as a volume standpoint? Because you, if you play it out to an extreme, you can say, well, you want, you want to make sure you have access to those outliers. So go bet on every company and venture to ensure you have that outlier access, assuming that yeah, you know, valuations are, are appropriate and you could hit certain multiples as you envision things. But when does that break from a modeling perspective as well as from, um, you know, separately from an organizational and horsepower perspective for, for you and your team in compiling that portfolio and supporting the portfolio? Well, from a, from a modeling perspective, it, it kind of doesn't break. I mean, 100 is better than 50 and 200 is better than 100. And so there's, you know, the sort of the, the logically this thing just keeps on going. Now, the practical limitation on this is essentially the quality of your ability to source deals. So like, so like our model, so we, we would argue we're in the top tier. We're in this four and a half percent category in terms of being able to pick outliers. And we're sourcing from a particular group of, you know, kind of areas like Stanford and so forth that have produced a lot of outliers. But there's only so many, if you will, great companies that are going to get produced from where we can source. And so there's a natural limitation on the size of our portfolio based on the quality of the sourcing. And then there's also a practical limitation on, well, how much work does it take to select these companies? And when we go through this analytics process, it it's, ends up taking us a couple of days, which is not huge, but you know, we can only, we've got three folks on the investment team so that we can only do so many of them. And then there's also the supporting side. So once we invest in a company, by the way, we don't usually take board seats. Sometimes we do, but usually there's, we like to be helpful with our companies. If a company needs a ton of help, they're probably not going to pass our filters. And so like our, our best companies, frankly, don't really need our help. So, so there, but, but there are still some practical limitations there. So if we look at all of that, like just for example, so our, our current fund is 66 million and we'll prop our target is 66 companies. So about a million dollars per company. And if we go raise a hundred million dollar fund the next time around, we'll probably be looking at about a hundred companies and we'll have to, you know, add more support on the staffing side to be able to make all that happen. And, and why 100 and not 150 or 200? Yeah, like I said, so th- this is the practical limitation. So the question is, I want as many companies as I can get, so long as I'm on this, call it this 4.5% hit rate. And, and by the way, it's, it's actually more subtle than that. It's really this 10x probability weighted multiple. So so long as we're getting a 10, and which, which is, so the 4.5%, that's kind of a easy proxy, but really 
what drives our behavior is this 10x probability weighted multiple. So I want as many 10x probability weighted multiple investments as I can get. And so if I, if I can get 200 of them, I'd, I'd take 200. But I think practically speaking, we're going to hit diminishing returns. And so like, like right now, with it, so we're, we probably make about two investments a month. And that's, I think that's kind of right at sort of, I think we, we couldn't make three investments a month because we would hit these diminishing returns on these various factors. Right. And so, and for Floodgate or First Round who have bigger than $100 million funds, but do, you know, 50 investments or, or you know, much less than 100, they, they would say that diminishing returns happens much quicker. They'd also say probably that you know, they, they don't use the 10x, you know, metric that you, that you use, they, they use different metrics. Can you talk, talk to both well, of those? Well, so, so I would say like uh, one of the challenges in venture is distinguishing the decision from the outcome. And I would say this is a really fundamental distinction to make in this industry. So we would argue that we're all about making high quality decisions as defined by this 10x probability weighted multiple. And if we make high quality decisions, we will eventually get good outcomes. But, but if you don't have that distinction, if you don't have criteria for making your decisions where you can feel confident about a decision, even if it ends up being a zero at the end of the day, I think what happens is people start looking at outcomes as the key indicator of are they making good decisions. And by the way, most outcomes are going to be bad. And so I think a lot of venture funds say, oh, you know, you've just gotten into venture or you've been here for three years. You've made six investments and five of them are duds. So you don't know what you're doing yet. So you need to be more choosy when you're investing. And so there, there's a lot of, I would say, a lot of the guidance in venture, like when people are getting trained is, you know, don't just go invest in the first thing that, that looks exciting, but you have to be really disciplined and do your homework and at the end of the day, make, make a small number of investments. And by the way, I think that's good advice in general. I think it is hard when you first get in here. There's so many you know, exciting entrepreneurs with big ideas and so forth. So you do need to be disciplined. But I think because there isn't a standard for what a high quality decision looks like, people carry this advice way too far and end up with a much smaller pool of investments than they really need to have. So, and then I think, you know, that, that's really the fundamental problem in the industry, which is, you know, the whole industry is really driven by gut as opposed to data and logic, which to me feels like a really strange thing. So you look at who are venture capitalists, you know, they're typically, they came out of, you know, they were successful entrepreneurs or investment banking or executives in, you know, technology companies, but they, they were successful in another, if you will, another career. And if you look at ask why, well, probably because they were very facile with data and numbers and complex situations. And, you know, everybody else is, is walking around, you know, just kind of shooting from the hip and they're being more systematic about it. But then as soon as they get into venture, you either have the magic or you don't. And so all those skills around data and logic seem like they just get left at the door when you move into the industry. Well, and that's where I, I think there is a, there's an ego-driven component to it of, I can pick better than you and I can outperform. So I'm going to make my bet and I am compensated uh, and my livelihood is dependent on me being able to pick successfully within that model. And the other ego part of it yeah. is, is uh, that they also think that they can help the company and thus need to do the companies so they can, they can 
really play a role in helping the company be successful. Correct. And that's, that's well, an important it, aspect of actually getting the deal, you, you know, making the investment happen, right? Especially for the hot companies. And we see that there are hot companies at Seed um, who are very much oversubscribed, be it the company raising $500,000 or the company raising $3 million. Um, we've seen equally where, where they can be oversubscribed and there's a significant demand. So everybody's trying to get into that company. And then there's a point when the founder has to say, I value you and your capital, which is a, you know, kind of a proxy for your time most. And that's where I'm going to go. And that's all on, that's on the venture capitalist to, to make that pitch to the entrepreneur that, that is, you know, how we're going to get into the best companies and partner with the best founders, I, I, I think. And then there is, you know, we talked about the time limitations from an operational perspective on that, but it is also, you know, you got to make sure your story resonates with the founder uh, as well so that they will make room for you versus somebody else. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, so, so you, you put your, your finger on, I, I think one of the really unfortunate things in this industry is, is the role that ego plays. And, you know, and unfortunately, there's actually these, these positive feedback loops on ego. You know, it's, it's not an industry that corrects that behavior very well. So, so if you're, you know, a VC and you've invested in some, you know, monster hit company, you think you've got the magic. You know, by the way, there's even this thing called a Midas list for people that have, you know, the golden touch. And by the way, that's what, you know, entrepreneurs and LPs want to hear too. So like take LPs, for example, you go to these endowments and the foundations and, you know, the fund of funds, the people who are like really have real expertise in investing in venture. And what they want to hear, and I know I went through some fundraising is they want a VC to say, invest in me because I've got the magic. Oh, by the way, I don't just have the magic in terms of picking. I can actually make companies successful. That's why it's really important for me to be on the board. And because of that, I need to have a really concentrated portfolio because there's only you know, so much of me that goes around. <laughs> and and then, then the other thing that comes along with that, and oh, by the way, I'm going to have this information advantage because I'm on the board and I'm making things happen. And so when a winner materializes out of my portfolio, I need a big reserve so I can you know, double down on that. And, and by the way, they've been trained, LPs have been trained by Sequoia, Greylock, Benchmark, et cetera, because that's what they say. So now they look at, you know, the seed stage folks, you know, like a Ulu Ventures, for example, and they say, well, you know, this is what Sequoia says, so why aren't you saying that? And we would say, well, because the data shows exactly the opposite on every dimension. It's like data shows no one picks winners, not even Sequoia. The data shows that we, we would argue it's like our best companies really don't need us. Like SoFi was a, it was a huge winner for us. We were totally irrelevant to their success. Oh, by the way, we, we like to help out because it was kind of fun. And it was, you know, it was a fun company to be around and be helpful to it, but really, really, they didn't need us. And I would argue that's true for many of the best companies. And also, you know, we talked about the whole reserve side. So, so we say, it's interesting. So our story runs exactly counter to what a lot of the LPs in the industry want to hear. Now, you are still picking companies to invest in and, and you are making decisions um, with, with a rubric and, and a goal of, of a 10x probability weighted multiple on it. But you are still making an investment decision on individual companies. And so isn't, aren't you in kind of that same boat of, yes, you have more, more cards to play because you're going to invest in a larger portfolio, but it still comes back to you and your team deciding on which company you know, warrants that, that initial investment or not. You, you have taken a very yeah. different approach on the, uh, should you heavy up day one or should you reserve for follow-ons and, and that, you know, and the mathematics behind that and why that's the right approach. But otherwise, you know, how do you make it so that your ego is not coming, <laughs> coming into these, these same decisioning that everybody else is making, and you're not just following the herd yeah. with a larger portfolio? So, so I, I'd say 
the, the difference is that we're, we have a principle-based approach towards making our decisions. So we have to do exactly what everybody else does. We have to source good deals and then, you know, pick them and support them and so forth. Imagine a company that you thought was a really hot, really great company is out of business in two years. And now you want to say, well, let's do a postmortem. What did we learn? And I think a typical VC would go back to their investment memo and the investment memo would say, early customers are a risk factor. And, and then you'd be like, okay, well, you know, did we like, was it really a super risk factor? I mean, so what does that mean? It was, let's we'll say it went out of business because it couldn't get any customers. And it's like, well, what a lot of VCs will tell themselves because that's just really kind of, it's sort of difficult to put your hands around it. They'll say things like, oh, I was just too early, right? Like I'm so far sighted in where the market's going. I have to hold myself back a little bit because sometimes I just don't appreciate how behind everybody else in the world is. And I would argue there's not much learning in that. Whereas we would go back and we would say, well, what probability did we put on them getting initial customers? We might say, oh, we gave them an 80% chance of getting early customers. Now, by the way, we're saying that for 10 companies. And if in 10 companies, eight of them get early customers and two of them go out of business because they don't get early customers, we would say, yeah, you know, we saw the risk. We were appropriately calibrated. And sometimes you're going to get lucky and sometimes you're not. But now take another scenario. Let's say we go back and we say there's an 80% chance to get early customers and 10 companies that we give them an 80% chance of, only one of them actually succeeded and got early customers. Like, oh boy, wait, we thought eight out of 10 would, do, would get early customers and only one out of 10 got early customers. So we were way overly optimistic here. We missed something in our analysis and we got to make sure we don't miss it going forward. And, and I'd argue without putting a number on something, it's very difficult to have those kinds of insights and you need those kind of insights to develop, I would argue, some humility and to be open to learning. Right. And so as, as you've gone through it all um, over the years, have you found certain types of companies that are more likely or, or less likely to, to fit within your portfolio? Uh, you know, anything from consumer services is, is a no and enterprise SaaS is, is more likely to be a yes or IoT or domestic versus international? How, what data have you been able to compile based on your learnings over the years on that front? Yeah, so I'd say, like, if you look across our portfolio, the one common theme they all have is they all have some small shot at being a huge success. So if you take out, like, that market leader, and by the way, this might be like a 1% to 3% kind of probability. It's the way, it's the tail end. But if you lopped that off and you said, you know, this company can never be more than a billion dollars or, you know, like 100x multiple, that sort of thing, it's probably not going to pass our 10x probability weighted multiple. So that's the most common reason why a company that otherwise looks really attractive is not in our investable set. Gotcha. Yeah, it's, it's limited upside uh, for that. It makes sense. You know, as you, as you talk about these, these winners, and, and I realize we're bouncing around on topics, but um, I, you know, as, as you think about the winners and, and power laws driving things, and this is a, has been a hot topic, but the quote-unquote soft bank effect of potential kingmaker with you know, one company receiving just massive sums of capital and understand that that comes in later than when you've invested. But has that changed how you approach things and, and what you're looking for in founders or, or companies day one when you are making that, that bet, trusting that later on it is going to shake out so that there is one massive winner just kind of furthering uh, what we've heard over the years. Uh, uh, and, but that massive winner is just going to become even more massive than it has historically. Is, is that one, I guess, is that a fair assessment of the soft bank effect? And then two, if, if you agree with that, how, how does it play into your decisioning? 
Yeah. So, so I mean, so first of all, I think it's 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 true that you know if if SoftBank puts a billion dollars into you, you've got a competitive advantage versus those folks that don't have a billion dollars. And and by the way, that doesn't guarantee success, but it makes I would argue it does make it harder for other companies to be successful. I mean, you you could it's kind of like Comcast going after Comcast. I mean, Comcast can just make their internet service free for folks in a certain area if they want to kill competition or you know or just lose money on it. So, I mean, if you, if you can basically distort the market because you've got so much capital, I think, you know, think China, right. You know, in terms of there's this complaint that they're, they're dumping, whether it's solar panels or what, or semiconductor chips. So, so there, there is a, there is an advantage to having a lot of capital. So the implication for us is sort of twofold. So first of all, you look at like our portfolio construction, we would argue this means you need to have more companies in your portfolio. It's harder to pick the winners when SoftBank might come along and pick somebody that's not obvious and turn them into a winner. So it adds some randomness into the ability to pick winners because, you know, you don't know how SoftBank's going to behave. And then the, the second thing that it does is we think this SoftBank will sort of artificially consolidate markets. So if there is a market that could support, call it five big companies, all that are, you know, mass market players. But now all of a sudden SoftBank comes in and gives one of them a few billion dollars. Now maybe the market can only support three mass market players because one of them just got, you know, a lot bigger. And, and by the way, you know, if one got bigger, then you know, somebody else is probably going to go off and get you know, money from other folks to go compete and so forth. But you end up with a smaller number of better capitalized players. So like when we look at our market share numbers, our market share numbers are driven a lot by the number of mass market players we see in the market. And so and it's a little more complicated and I need a picture to describe this, but so it's just got a different, a mass market with three big players has a very different kind of characteristics than a mass market with say 20 big players. Yeah. I, you know, I see you, if you look at VC maxims um, that have persisted over time, I see you accepting some and, and challenging most. One that you accept is it's all about the outliers. One that you challenge are that VCs can, you know, VCs, pick better than they think they can pick or, or, or um, but also I wonder if you're challenging also the idea that VC is a service business with the value that VCs can provide to entrepreneurs. How, how would you respond to that? No, I, I, I think VC is totally a service business. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. You know, I mean, you know, well, okay. So there's a capital component here, right? Where I mean, I mean, the main thing entrepreneurs want from VCs is the money, but you know, if you've got choices and I can take the money from one of three places, how am I going to choose? By the way, service is, is an interesting, maybe I disagree with service now that I'm talking out loud here or thinking out loud. So I think of services business as there's something, some demonstrable value that I'm adding to you. And it's like, you know, I'm going to help you get sales or I'm going to help you hire people or these sort of things. And I would argue that most of the things VCs hold out as value add, it's marginal value add at best. And I'd say that the, the, the differentiator, I think, is more one of association. So, you know, an entrepreneur with choices, the question is, who do they want to be associated with? And by the way, value-added VC, that's one of the dimensions. But, you know, if I feel like people are jerks, I mean, I, I would say being jerks kind of dominates value-add. So it's a, kind of like the Bob Sutton no-asshole rule. And, you know, and now we're finding like with, uh, you know, the Me Too movement and so forth that um, diverse VCs and women VCs actually have an advantage with some types of entrepreneurs to say, hey, look, you know, I care about who shows up and is part of this thing that I'm building and is part of my culture. And, you know, I want a, I want a culture 
that's a particular kind of way that's you know says diversity and is attractive to the kinds of employees that I want to uh, attract and so forth. So and we find that with my partner Miriam, by the way. So so we've gotten some really attractive opportunities because. Basically, people view Miriam as nice and diverse, and they want nice and diverse as part of the investor set. On the company analysis side, uh, are, are you bringing that kind of data into into your analysis yet? As far as anything from team dynamics on on gender or, or race, but you know, expanding out to to location or um, repeat founders versus first time founders, are you adding in components like that in addition to? focusing on the overall market opportunity and, and likelihood of success for the company itself based on their business model. But how are those other aspects coming into play as you analyze companies? So we have three spots where essentially views about the team like this come into play. And we look at, call it the early stage life cycle of a company, the cross the chasm life cycle and the, and the mass market life cycle. And at each of those stages, we ask this team up to the job. Or are there some risks here associated with this particular team? And so if, you know, if you've got a bunch of jerks on the team, that's typically not that big a risk at the early stage. But when you start to scale at the mass market, if you've got a lot of ego and you know, those kind of things can be really killer as you start to build a culture in a, in a much bigger team. So, so that would show up. And by the way, if you've got a diverse team, and it seems like, you know, you're open to new ideas and, you know, you're more able to, by the way, if you're open to ideas on your team members, you're probably more open to ideas uh, that come from your customers and being able to adapt to the market. So we would look at diversity as a positive sign in terms of your ability to both build a great culture and to be able to adapt in the way you need to in the marketplace. And it shows up in, in those different areas. If, if Michael Kim was listening to this podcast uh, from Sandana, you know, Thunder Funds, who I, I think is, is, is fairly data-driven and pro-trigger, certainly considers himself to be, what, what is the best um, interpretation of what he might say in, in response to this? Or what's a sort of data-driven oh. argument? Yeah, well, so, 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 he, so he, he would probably say, hey, Clint, you just don't understand venture. And, and he would say that, you know, there are, you know, it's not just firms, but there are individuals inside firms who just have the magic. And so what I want to do is I want to create, essentially, I want to pick out those individuals that have the magic, and I want them to do their magic thing, which is a very small number of investments, be on the boards, you know, work like crazy to make their company successful. And then I'm going to get portfolio diversification because I'm going to have in my fund of funds, you know, a couple of dozen folks that look like these very best individuals from the very best firms. Right. So, 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 so I think he would, I think he would say like, Clint, all this diversification stuff that you're doing, that's not your job. That's my job is the fund to fund to do the diversification, diversification. It's your job to roll up your sleeves and, you know, focus in on a very small number of companies and make them successful. And, and if you were in his position, not your position, do you think he's wrong? Do you, do you think it's better to back 10 Ulu Venture portfolio construction than it is back 10 um, forerunners? You know, I mean, so, so I guess what I'd say is if you, if you really have conviction about kind of what you're doing, then I, I wouldn't disagree with his approach. So, so the challenge is going to be, though, that so he's got, you know, I mean, he's, by the way, he's got great funds in his portfolio, but there's going to be some of those funds that just get unlucky. And, you know, they had a great fund last time and they've got a lousy fund this time because they just don't have any winners in their 10 investments. And so do you keep supporting them or do you stop supporting them? So that, this is where the rubber is going to hit the road. And it, it takes a long time to separate luck from skill in this industry. 
And if you look at a lot of the, the folks that are like, you know, the, some of the premier folks in the seed stage phase, space, it's like, well, you, okay, was that really luck or was that really skill? I mean, so you, you've got a couple of big, huge wins. By the way, here's a way to think about it. So imagine you're an average VC. So you're batting two and a half percent. These are some statistics that I show sometimes. So if you bat two and a half percent and you follow the Michael Kim super concentrated portfolio, we have 10 investments in your, in your portfolio, you've got about a 20% chance of having a home run. By the way, if you have a home run, you look like a rock star, but it's only 20%. Now imagine there, there are at least 100 seed stage VCs who are average, who are following this strategy. And just looking at the numbers, you're going to have about 14 of them that have a home run in their portfolio, and they're going to look like rock stars. There's going to be four or five that have two home runs in their portfolio, and they're going to look like geniuses. And there's going to be one, and this is just, again, just totally odd. There's going to be one that's going to make 10 investments and have three outlier successes. And they're going to be like, you know, the next king of the industry. And that, by the way, that's got nothing to do with skill. That's just total luck and how luck plays out in an industry where you've got, you know, such low chances of huge successes. So, so that's, you know, again, the, the, the initial presumption was everybody here was average. So you're going to have average investors look like geniuses because they get stupid lucky. And if you're an LP, now the question is, how would I tell the difference between somebody who got stupid lucky and somebody who is systematically great at what they do and is going to be able to do that fund after fund. Right. You know, it's unfortunate that this strategy gets, you know, criticized as spray and pray. Have you, have you found a, a strong rebranding of that term or a strong counter to that criticism? <laughs> so, so, I, so I'd argue, I mean, so, so n- not a nice pithy one. I mean, other than the fact that everybody sprays and prays in this industry. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I mean, it's like, okay, who doesn't, right? I mean, if, if, if you're Sequoia and you're batting 5%, it means 95% of the time you're missing. Right. It's like, right. Then, and, and, and so to me, that, that sounds like spray and pray, you know, and, and then it's like, if, if that's not you, then convince me why you're better at sourcing, selecting, and supporting your companies than Sequoia. I mean, if you can, with a straight face, tell me that then I say you can do something other than spray and pray. Right. Get over, get over a 5% outlier success rate, and then uh, you can well, pray a little less. But, but either way, the, the spray is there. It's just the size of, the, uh, of it. And what we'd say is, I, I think our counter to it is that it's, it's spray, but, but don't pray. Like There is an analysis that's going into these companies. There still is a reason that you're betting on them. Yes, your portfolio size is larger. You are doing it in more companies. But spray and pray makes it seem like you are not familiar with the investments that you're making. Uh, so, so I do kind of take some issue with that as, as an overall kind of statement because there is logic, right? This isn't just us going out and giving money to every founder who comes our way. There's significant analysis that goes into the companies from our end at Village, uh, from 500 startups to, uh, to what Clint's working on at Ulu, and he has a, a much more stringent kind of rubric and, and data analysis that goes into it. That is not at what we think of as spray and pray, though we often say it as spray and pray. And so this is me kind of unburdening myself of years of emotional trauma, having been with relatively high volume funds and hearing everybody kind of diminish it in that way. And I think it diminishes the teams uh, for the most part that are working on, on these firms that do tend to do a little more high volume because there really isn't an analysis that goes into it. And it just gets back to where we started this conversation about Clint's portfolio construction, about wanting to put more money in 
day one and getting your ownership then and, and chasing, um, chasing might be the, the wrong word, but, um, you know, going after that high multiple instead of uh, the cash on cash returns that you could generate at, at the later stage. Well, and one thing I want to just jump in here too, and, and, and thanks for kind of bringing me back to this, you know, putting money in up front, is we don't really do no reserves. So that's kind of a, a flippant sort of way to kind of provoke a response. But really what we say is, you know, we will follow on when we can get those 10x probability weighted multiple. And from the entrepreneur's point of view, whether we're very explicit, we sit down with the entrepreneurs and we say, let's, let's walk through a couple of scenarios. So let's say the success scenario. So, you know, you do a great job, you know, Sequoia comes in and wants to lead your series A. They don't want us to follow on. They want as much of that as they can possibly get. So that's kind of, that's a win-win for us not to follow on if we choose not to at that point. You know, take the other, the other side where it's like you're, you know, very clear after call it 12 to 18 months that there, there isn't, there isn't a venture fundable company that's here. I mean, maybe you can build a company to, you know, a few million dollars in revenue and get a nice, you know, kind of acquisition out of it, but that's not the business that we're in. And so we would say in that scenario, we're not going to continue to support this. And, and by the way, you might not want to either. So if you want to walk away at this point, we are totally supportive of that. You have, you've taken a good swing at the big market opportunity. We've all come to the conclusion that the big opportunity is not there. So we think, you know, it's better, probably a better use for our capital and, and your time. And, but we're not, we're, but we're not going to hold your feet to the fire to try to get, you know, like, you know, 50 cents on the dollar as opposed to 20 cents on the dollar by working an extra year and getting an acquisition. So, so entrepreneurs kind of get those two scenarios. And then there's a scenario of, well, let's say you're making good progress, but not enough progress to get to the series A. So if we see you taking risk off the table and, you know, really adding value to this company you're building, but you haven't gotten to that million dollar revenue run rate or whatever the metrics are for your category for the series A folks, you can't get the series A. Basically, the market's not going to bid up your price in a dramatic way, but you've taken risk off the table. So we're frankly happy to come in in a post seed capacity and lead a post seed round. You know, that. By the way, you know, that's going to have to get our 10x probability weighted multiple as well. But we've done that numerous times. And so from an entrepreneur's point of view, we would argue that our, you know, it's not about the reserves. It's about kind of a smart risk return on the follow-on actually nicely aligns us with the needs of the entrepreneurs in these various scenarios. If Mike Maples or Josh Koppelman were here and, you know, assuming that they have a significant chunk for reserves, what might their argument in response be or what different set of assumptions do they have that guides their strategy? Well, you know, I, so I, I, th I think they're probably like the, I mean, so they've got more of a policy approach. It's interesting. Ann Mirko recently talked at the pre-money event and they were saying like their, their big insight over the last year was that their reserve pool is like larger than their prior funds. And so they need to be more systematic in terms of how they think about reserves. And they actually brought somebody in full time to do nothing but essentially kind of be the devil's advocate on reserves to make sure that they're spending their money on reserves wisely. So I'd argue actually floodgates moving in the direction of where Ulu has been for a long time. They just haven't quite gotten to the point yet where, you know, they've got kind of metrics around this. And by the way, I, I take guidance on a, there's a guy, Charlie Munger, who's one of my favorite investors ever. And he argues for essentially the opportunity cost standard for investing money, which is if you're going to put a dollar into something, that dollar has to compete with every other investment opportunity you've got. And if you section off your investments and you say, well, here's a pool of capital, it's only competing for follow-on 
you know, reserves. It's only competing for follow-on investments. And I've got this other pool that's only competing for new investments. You've now created a limitation in your business that's going to sub-optimize. Because you're going to, you would deploy more money at that first stage if, if they weren't segregated funds? So, I mean, you're, you're just not even, you're not even looking at the option, right? So, so if you say, you know, I mean, by definition, right? So I've taken a pool of my capital and reserved it. So that means I'm not thinking about spending that money on, you know, the next new investment. I'm only going to think about spending that money for this company or this group of companies when they get to their follow-on spots. And by the way, so, so here, here's, the, here's the acid test on this. And, and this is something I asked the LPs and um, some LPs have turned around and asked other VCs, which is, okay, if you're taking a big chunk of your portfolio and you're putting it into reserves, so let's say, you know, $1 up front, $2 in reserve. So a third of your capital is up front, two thirds of your capital is in follow-ons. What's the return on your reserves? That's actually the majority of your capital. So the question is, how is it doing? And <laughs> I have yet to find a venture fund that can tell me what the return on their reserves are because they don't even look at it. And then there's a few big firms actually I know that have looked at this and it's frankly been pretty disappointing internally in terms of what those numbers look like. And then it gets to those like, well, why are you doing it? I mean, if your upfront money's doing great and your reserve money's doing terribly, why are you still doing reserves? And the answer usually comes back with something like the, the general partners like to do that. They, they like to be on the boards. They like to be able to say, I'm in for my pro rata. It fits their model of what it means to be a VC. But, it, but now it's, it's more a story they're telling themselves than driven by, it's more driven by, I call it the story, than financial returns. That's, uh, that seems to assume that there's a loss within the returns, though, right? As long as you're outperforming whatever market benchmarks your LPs are using, if there is more money to be made and, and it will outperform other, other avenues, you would continue to do that. I understand the, you know, the first check versus follow-on uh, and, and reserving capital for that. But if there's money to be made reserving or follow-on, wouldn't you still deploy on the follow-ons, uh, assuming, and, and maybe you have to assume that you have a world of near unlimited capital so that you can do everything that you've set your mind to. But in that case, you could deploy as much money on the first checks as you want. Maybe your, your rubric changes from a 10x to, to an 8x for the, for the follow-on capital. But as long as you're outperforming, wouldn't you still want to deploy into, into these follow-on rounds? And it's more what you're speaking to is a lack of attention to detail, but not a fundamental argument against follow-on investing uh, versus you know, venture versus other asset classes. No, no. So, and, and, and this is the story why I think, you know, the top tier funds can raise, you know, a billion dollar funds and it makes sense. So most of that capital is going late stage, but if it's going late stage and generating, you know, 10% kinds of IRRs and, you know, the alternative that LPs have are, gener are generating 6%. Yeah, 10%, it's, you know, it's, it's good. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. And oh, by the way, the early stage stuff is generating 20%. So the blended is, you know, 13, 14, something like that. And, you know, I mean, you know, over long periods of time, that, those are great returns. So my critique is more, if you've got limited capital, so Ulu's only got $66 million in capital, and where am I going to put that? And I would say it's silly for me to put that into 10% IRR investments when I've got 20% IRR investments that are not being funded, that I could fund that I'm not. So, why, so that's where the sub-optimization comes in. 
But yeah, if I run out, if I run out of 20% IRR opportunities, yeah, then I'm going to my next best alternative and maybe that's 10% and that's the best I can do. And that's still, it's still good, you know, call it on an industry level. If you were advising founders fund, you know, billion dollar, 1.3, maybe, I don't know, enormous fund and done, you know, incredibly well, very concentrated portfolio. They do, I, I think they do a lot of follow on, you know, like in late stage investments, Airbnb, SpaceX, et cetera. They do no serve, no help or, or little help. What, what would you, are they successful in spite of their portfolio construction or because like, what, what would you advise their construction to be? Should they be more distributed for that size fund? Well, you know, so, so I, I guess I would point to sort of the history of venture funds. And there was a venture fund in the late 90s called Crescendo Ventures. And there was, they had a fund, I think it was like 98 or something. It was the best performing venture fund anywhere in the world. They just crushed it. They were telecom only. And so they raised a $650 million early stage telecom focused fund in 1999. And then by 2002, like literally half of that was gone. Like not like trouble, but gone zero. And, and they spent the next 10 years basically, you know, getting capital back for their investors. But, but I would say, you know, so that's the risk that Founders Fund has, which is when it works, when you're super concentrated in an industry or a set of companies, you look like geniuses. But then if the world turns on you, like it did in the early, you know, in 2001, and by the way, it turned on telecom even more harshly than it turned on internet. And, you know, Crescendo just got crushed. And arguably, they were the smartest investors in telecom. They had the best team in telecom. And, uh, and by the way, I know this a little bit. I was a venture partner at Crescendo Ventures way back when for a little bit. And I think, you know, that's, that's the danger of running, the, running a concentrated book. Totally. I mean, one critique of, of I think, 500 Startups heard a lot, or not critique, but a description is it's sort of the repeatable 3X, but there isn't as much upside in, in the high volume model. How would you respond to that? Well, let me jump in quickly first, but I, I think there's a difference between the approach that Clinton Ulu takes, where they're tending to write larger checks and securing more ownership up front than 500 was taking, where it tends to be more in the 100K to 250K you know, low, very low single digit ownership in those companies. Um, and I believe that Clint is taking a different approach. So, so similar, you're right on the, on the thing that we heard um, while I was at 500, but I do think there's, there's a, some differences between how Clint approaches investments and 500 approaches, though both, you know, looking at high volume early stage. Yeah, that, that's fair. So let's talk about diligence then, because Clint, you mentioned, I think you said you do a two-day diligence process. Might some other VCs say, hey, you'd have better uh, hit rate if you spent more time on diligence and thus if you spent less time investing? Or sorry, yeah, less companies investing. So, so I'd argue that the problem with a lot of diligence, and this gets also back to the fact that people are doing it based on gut and not metrics, is let's say there's 100 things you could diligence about a company. Now, the question is, like, well, which of those 100 things matter? And we would argue there's only half a dozen of those hundred things that matter, but it's different for each company. And oh, once we've gone through our analysis and we've got you know, ranges around you know, potential customers and market sizes and risks and that sort of thing, but we do, we do everything in ranges because that's how we capture the risk. But now we can do a sensitivity analysis and we can say, well, what if we're wrong about one of our estimates? What if our estimates on team risk is really on the high side instead of the low side? How much does that impact our probability weighted multiple? And because we're able to do this sensitivity analysis, we can identify the key drivers and risk and value out of this two-day exercise. And then the next part of our diligence is really focused. So for example, 
it might be calling up customers, or sometimes we never call the customers up. It just depends on how, how material that information is going to be to our decision. And so we would, and by the way, this is, this is true also if you go to like pharma R&D and how the big pharma companies do like set up their clinical trials and do their market studies and so forth. They, they do this kind of sensitivity analysis because they want to make sure that they're putting their information gathering resources in the places where they're going to get the biggest bang for the buck. And so we, so we would argue that because we do that, we can accomplish a lot more than the typical VC in a much shorter period of time. And, and it's interesting, if you ask our entrepreneurs to compare our diligence process versus the diligence process they get with other VCs, I think they'll say a couple of things. So first of all, they'd say, our diligence process actually adds value to them because we share all this analysis with them at the end of the day. So actually, literally, like, literally, here's the spreadsheet model, and here's the data that you that you provided, and here's the data that we provided. And we have about 10 to 20 percent of the time we have entrepreneurs that change their business model or their initial market because of this analysis. So that's the first big difference between us and other VCs. The other thing they would say is like, "Wow, you went a lot deeper than any other VC we talked about," which is true, but only true in these you know half a dozen areas that from our point of view, were the biggest drivers of risk and return. So we go really deep, but only in a small number of areas. Totally. That makes sense. Last question for, from my end is the, the 10X PWIC. How do you think about that as your North Star versus, you know, if, again, to use Mike Maples or Josh Koppelman or, or whoever other seed investor, North Stars that, that they might use and what assumptions underlie those choices? Well, you know, so, so interestingly, I'd say Mike Maples probably has a, a similar kind of North Star, but he phrases it in more, more colorful language, right? So he wants to invest in Thunder Lizard, you know, those, comp- those companies that can be like, you know, the market leaders. And he's got this very colorful language around it. But I think that, that's a very useful metaphor that drives him to, some of this, to look at some of the same things that we would look at. I, I think so the actual behaviors in terms of what you're digging into can be very different because like for us, it's, it's, it can be very different when we're looking at like a sale that's a high risk, big opportunity versus figure, which is low risk, but, you know, or lower risk and, you know, kind of lower multiples given success. So we would go, we go about those two things very differently because of our understanding of the risk. And, you know, and then first round's a little interesting. I mean, I'm not as familiar with their diligence process, so can't comment as much there. Got it. Thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.